there's going to be problems. That's why in ministry there's always going to be problems because somebody's not going to do the right thing. Somebody's going to say something they shouldn't say. Somebody's going to get angry when they shouldn't get angry. Somebody may uh, take a position that somebody else wanted. And we cause each other problems, whatever it might be. And this was the problem when Noah and, uh, took his, his three sons and their wives onto the ark. Uh, they stepped on as people that were righteous, more righteous than anybody else on earth. That's why God saved them. They loved God. They followed God. Hey, they were willing to build an ark in the middle of nowhere, uh, when everybody made fun of them and mocked them, and they were doing it because they wanted to follow God. And that ark eventually came to rest on a mountain. And when it did, the waters subsided, and then it was time for Noah and his sons and their wives to leave the ark. And if you remember that story, one of the very first things that happens is Noah leaves the ark, he gets drunk, he uncovers himself, so it's indecent, and instead of uh, taking care of it in the right way, uh, one son went around talking about it. And what God wanted us to know was this. I looked at the earth, and I had, I had uh, eight people. <laughs> I had eight people that were righteous, more righteous than anyone on earth. And I put them in an ark. And the day they step out of the ark, the only people on planet earth, we find out they brought sin with them through the ark. They carried their sin nature through the flood. And now the sin nature is in the new world. And Mo, uh, I'm sorry, Noah demonstrated that the minute he stepped out of that ark and so did his kids. Uh, the leaders ran into problems because people, though they love God, sin and hurt each other. And it should be different in Christian circles. But sin and the sin nature remains in Christians. When we trusted Christ as our Savior, we don't believe a theology that is taught in our world that we were made righteous. No, we weren't. We were declared righteous. We still fight this body of sin and death, and we're going to fight it till the day we die or, or until the rapture, and we get a new body because the sin nature is in the flesh. And so the spirit inside is willing to follow God, but the flesh is weak, and it wants to follow its own desires. And as long as we're in these bodies, we can just expect that sin is going to be a problem even among Christian people. Uh, this is what we're going to learn about here. Uh, in this city of Jerusalem, there is sin in the city. There is sinners in the city, even though they belong to God. We have a great cry from people who have been taken in, uh, fin taken in financial areas, cheated in financial areas, and now they're trying to deal with a drought. These are brothers and sisters in the family of God causing problems for those who are trying to be faithful, trying to follow God. In verse 2, the problem facing them is that they need food. They can't even feed their family, some of them, and they can't secure it. They don't have the money. There is famine, which is difficult uh, anyway, without trying to build a wall with the neighbors after you, uh, like the Samaritans and others, and a shortage of money for a majority of them. The king gave them tons of money to get this project started. Now it seems like the king is taking tons of money from them in their taxes, which is what kings do. There are reasons for extra hardship that go way back beyond the famine. Uh, food is not plentiful, and to top it all off, many did not have the means to purchase it, even if they could get it. Well, what happened? In verse 3, we find specifics. Now we find out uh, the specific reason for the problem is that people have had to mortgage their land and their houses in order to buy expensive grain that they need for their families. 
The kids have to eat. There are, there are desperate times for many people. And here we are building the wall, neglecting our field work under the threat of enemy attack, and now we're hungry and we can't afford to buy food. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a position where you didn't have enough food didn't know, and didn't know where you are going to get it. Uh, but these people were. In verse 4, others tell Nehemiah that they, have, they had to borrow money on their fields so that they can afford to pay the king's property tax. Of interest here is that when Alexander the Great conquered the Persians, what he found in the treasury of the Persian king consisted of 270 tons of gold and also on top of that 1,200 tons of silver. Surely the king could have done something to help people in the middle of a famine besides continue to take exorbitant taxes. In verse 5, two issues arise here. One is that the people have had to force their children to be what we would call indentured slaves to help eliminate the starvation. And two, uh, the lenders were taking control of the people's collateral, fields, and vineyards. Nobody in his right mind would borrow money from somebody against a piece of property knowing that that person would now have rights to use the property. How am I going to pay? This just makes no sense at all. It's crazy. So they find some people that have money, make their kids go and work for them. It does two things. Number one, at least they're going to feed the kids while they're there. They'll get some food. And number two, we'll make some money, and maybe we can buy some food, and someday maybe we can bring our kids back. You can see why Nehemiah was furious when he found all this out. What it meant is if a farmer mortgaged his field and did it to purchase better, say, farm equipment, uh, but the lender took his field, how could he possibly make any money to pay back his debt? I mean, today, you know, so I have a new tractor sitting in the yard, but I have nothing to farm. How's that going to help anybody? All right? So the people were giving their kids as slaves uh, to the lenders in an effort to try to work down that debt. Now, I have, I have uh, talked to thousands of homeless and vagrant people, all right? And sometimes they just come to the church because whenever they travel through the country, they hit the churches. That's why our ministerial association sends them to the sheriff's office, check your, uh, check, check your uh, driver's license and see if there's any warrants out for your arrest or anything. And then if that's okay, then the ministerial association gives them a voucher. They can go get some food or some gas or something like that. It keeps them from hitting every church in town. But they still try that. They still do that. And I've given away lots of money to them. And I, I learned early on, they always say, hey, when I get to my job at such and such a place, I'll pay you back. And, and I actually believe some of them. You know, at first, I, okay, you'll pay me back. That's great. Because uh, in those days, we, did, we didn't have a lot of money to give away. But okay, you'll pay me back. And then they leave, and I thought, well, uh, you don't even know my name. You don't even know the address of the church. How are you going to get this money back? And you're going out of town. And that dawned on me, and then it finally dawned on me, they have no intention of paying this back. And if I'm at this, it's this point where I've got to go to a church and ask them for money, I'm talking about just homeless, vagrant people going through, um, if I have to give them money because they need something, and they go to a lot of other churches and they give them money, and everybody wants to be paid back, that means that this person, even if they do get a job, their paycheck is already spent and they don't get ahead. So what I decided to do was, okay, I'll give you some money, and if they say I'm going to pay it back, I'm going to say, first of all, I don't think that's ever going to happen, and I want you to know I don't want it to happen. Don't ever pay me back. You just keep it. 
because the more that people would do that, they're going to be able to get ahead then, and if that doesn't work, then we need to do some financial counseling or try to find you a job or something like that. But the point is, uh, to try to get them to pay it back just puts them further in the hole. And I do know one guy that came back and tried to pay me back. I was so grateful that he did that. I just said, okay, I'll take it. I took it from him to make sure it was a real transaction. Then I gave it back to him and said, I want you to keep it. That's my gift for, for you doing what you said you would do. This is kind of what's going on. The people that have money and can survive don't care about their brothers and sisters who are not making it. Yeah, instead of helping them, yeah, I'll hire your kid to do slave labor, and, uh, and they're not going to get paid very much, but yeah, I'll do that. So the rich get richer, and the poor go without food. In verses 6 to 9, Christians not out of anger must seek solutions from the word of God. And that's where he is going to master his own heart and see what to do. So in verse 6, uh, though he was very angry, when he heard what the problem was and how believers were treating each other, the brothers in the Lord were not treating each other as brothers should. Uh, there are violations of biblical mandates that are taking place that always lead people to a place of being hurt. The verse in Hebrew begins this way, I mastered my heart. I got control of myself, is what he's saying. And he took the time to get himself under control to deal with his anger first, which is fantastic uh, in terms of an illustration for us or advice. We should never act out of our anger. We should get control of ourselves before we get into a situation. We should make sure that we're doing the right thing the right way. And uh, this is going to be about the only time you're going to hear Nehemiah say, please, <laughs> okay? Please do what's right. What a society we live in. We are becoming the minority in a big way. There are Christian people today who tell me, I've got the gist of the Bible, but that's as far as it goes. I'm going to run my life the way I want to run it. I don't care what God says about the family. I don't care what God says about marriage. I don't care what God says about how I use my money. I don't care. I'm going to do it my way. But yeah, I've got my ticket to heaven, so I'm okay with that. People just don't care. People don't care if you forgive them. People don't care if you help them. They just don't care. And we used to live in a country that went by the Judeo-Christian ethic. We no longer live in that country. But our churches should still be that way, right? No matter where we live. So he got himself under control, which is good advice. Get ourselves under control before we confront an issue. Then he did what was necessary with the group that caused the main problem. Nehemiah clearly knew the problem. The wealthier people were exacting usury, exorbitant interest from their borrowers who were their fellow Jews. The word for usury in Hebrew is mashah, and it is, it is not uh, the usual one we find for that word. Here, the lender is taking that which was pledged against the loan. How are you going to make it? You're not. The leaders were exploiting their brothers out of greed, selfishness, and insensitivity. The Bible determines that those to whom much has been given, much will be required. So in the midst of a famine, maybe the people that have, have uh, maybe planned better, I don't know, have a bigger bank account. I don't, I'm not sure how you got that, but whatever. Whatever we have comes from God. And if, if our uh, rich brothers and sisters would remember that when famine comes, when trouble comes, 
then to much, uh, much has been given to them that should be given to the people that are in need. And especially first to the household of God. We care for the people of Christ first and others later. The Bible ter- determines that if God gives you with much, whatever he gives you, use it for the glory and the honor of God. In verse 8, Nehemiah gives an account of how his family and officials have been helping their brothers. All right, so he steps up not as a hypocrite, but as a man who said, well, let me tell you what we've been doing. We're not taking people's collateral. We're not charging exorbitant interest. We're not charging interest at all. We're actually paying the debts of some of our brothers as God gives us the ability to do it. All right, and then, you know, I showed you two pictures at the beginning. Sometimes we see a vagrant like that, and we think, Chinese food and beer, really? Is that what you're in need of? And yet I've found out lots of the money I've given to homeless people. Uh, Sometimes I've followed them, and they're walking out of the grocery store with alcohol. That's not what I gave it to you for, so I've found better ways to give money. But the point is, if somebody is really in need, if there's genuine need, and it wasn't because they were a fool about their money, that's a whole different story. So he wants to know, how is it that Jews, people of God, are enslaving and impoverishing Jews. What's going on? In verse 9, we need to feel a personal reprimand for personal violations of God's word. We are either doing what God wants us to do or we're not. God's spirit will convict and convince us of our sin until our heart is so hardened we don't even know he's talking to us. And we don't give in anymore. But the Bible is saying you should be somebody and I should be somebody that we fear God. We're going to do what he tells us to do. do. Do we? That's a question. If we are not doing the right thing, well, what should we be doing? And by way of a rhetorical question, he teaches that God's people should live in the fear of the, of the Lord. Well, yeah, what would Jesus do? All right? How would Jesus handle this? It's not a, a good enough thing to wear WWJD on, on your wrist on a rubber band. You know, if you need that to remind you to do the right thing, there's a problem but what would Jesus want me to do? I fear him above everyone else, right? That's what we say. We should. If God's people don't live that way, it brings reproach on his people and on God's reputation. There are enough enemies that are trying to destroy us and defame us. Why should we do that to each other? Verses 10 to 13. Godly leaders must give godly direction for eliminating a problem among God's people. So that's why I went to the nobles and the leaders first, right? It is always a good thing when the leader is a good example of doing what is right. It doesn't work so well when they are not. He is lending, Nehemiah is lending to the people in their hardship money without interest, not just usury, no interest. So the first rule is to leave off charging interest in the household of God, Psalm 15.5. Now because we have communion, I'm... Uh, I'm not going to take time to read all these. They're in your bulletin, so you can look them up. Psalm 15.5, Proverbs 28.8 is very clear. Do not charge interest on loans to your brothers and sisters in Christ. The law forbid, change, uh, the law forbid charging a brother or sister interest. Now, I do want to look because there's another verse there I want uh, to Exodus 22.25. If you want to go there with me, please. Exodus twenty-two, twenty-five. It says, If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, 
You are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. The law said that a brother's well-being is more important than the amount loaned. Look at the next verse, verse 26. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, in other words, says, I'm gonna, I need some money for today. I said, what are you going to give me as collateral? I'll take your coat. And he does it. And he says, if you ever do that, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. Well, what if he doesn't get it paid off? He doesn't, he doesn't care about that. If I have the brother's coat, and that's what he keeps warm with at night, and I've taken it as, as a collateral or a promise for payment, I know he's going to go to sleep tonight and it's going to be cold. I'm going to get his coat back, even without the money, because people are more important than money. So if you do a loan today, the only thing I would add and ask you to do, because I know there's also sin among, among Christians, if, you, if you're going to loan something like that and do it even without interest, put it in writing. Put it in writing. Uh, I made a, made a land deal with one of my cousins. I trust him probably as much or more than anybody else in the world. I, I would take his word at anything. I insisted we put it all in writing. I insisted we, we brought in uh, title companies and stuff like that because I don't want anything to get in the way of our relationship. It's going to be done right. And so we put it in writing. We did the right legal stuff. I didn't need that, but I wanted it to be there uh, for both of us, so we did it. Um, in verse 11, he asked them to give the borrowers back their fields and their houses and the usury, usury that they were extracting. Um, I remember uh, that as I read this, what it's like to have interest kill you. I have two cousins my age that when they were in high school, they wanted to start their own farm part with their dad, and so they started buying land. Some of the land they paid for was at 21% interest. And if you've never had a loan with 21% interest, you have no idea what that's like. Uh, you do without. Uh, almost everything you make goes to pay off that interest. It will kill you. And everybody's loans were like that. And, and it took years and years and years for them to crawl out of that. And it also helped that they hit oil on their ground. That helped a bunch too. I don't know if they ever would have made it like that. You can't pay that kind of interest. It's ridiculous. But that's what creditors were doing. And lots of farmers lost their farms. The lenders agreed to do this thing that honored God and care for their brothers. They were willing to take an oath uh, with the priests as witnesses to obey the directive. See, all Nehemiah wanted them to do was look at the text. What does it say you should do? Do it. Do it. Fear God and do it. Now, we could use it in every other area of our life. God wants to be in, in every area of your life and mine. Nothing held back from him. Finally, in verse 13, Nehemiah prophesies a curse from God on those who disobey. That's how serious this is. He demonstrated that by emptying the pockets of his robe and saying, well, God is going to do this to you, rich man, if you don't do what you said you're going to do here today. The Lord gave, Job said, and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is always God's option to take it away. Always. We can learn this. In Matthew 7, 12, it teaches us to treat others as we want to be treated. So the wealthier are always to understand that it is not by their power or intelligence that they are who they are or they have what they have. God put them there, and God can take it away. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Number two, don't take advantage of the needy. That's what they were doing. Because if you do, God will require it of us if we do. 
You may think you're, you're safe. You may think you're secure. You may think you have it made. You know, God can change that overnight if he wants to. Fear God. And then finally this. Be dedicated to the well-being of brothers and sisters in Christ. People are the most important things on this earth other than God. And we don't want to have temporal values where we put things above people. I want to close with this uh, illustration, and then we'll spend some time around the Lord's table. Um, This person writes, um, J.H. Walton writes this, Many are familiar with Santa Claus, but not as many are aware of the historical person, his name was St. Nicholas, behind the myth. Nicholas was born in the late 200s A.D., to very wealthy parents in the era in the era of the modern day Turkey, in the area of the modern day Turkey, then under Roman control at that time, he had been raised a devout Christian. So when he lost his parents in a plague, he decided to obey Jesus' instruction to sell all that you have and give it to the poor. He used his whole inheritance to help the needy, the suffering, and the ill. He dedicated his life to Christian service and he was made Bishop of Myra when he was still quite young. He was known for his generosity, his love for children, care for the sailors and ships. He was persecuted under the Roman Emperor Diocletian, and after having suffered for his faith, was exiled and put in prison. In the year 325, after he was released, he went to the Council of Nicaea, which produced the Nicaean Creed. He died in 343 on December the 6th and celebrations commemorating his death, St. Nicholas Day, eventually became merged into Christmas traditions. St. Nicholas truly was a man who cared about other people. What a great illustration. We're going to segue here into our time around the Lord's table.